This is the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and this is the Science Shorts series. For those of you who have been regular listeners, you already know this, but if you're new, we have a long-form conversation that goes out every two weeks, and on the in-between weeks, we deliver this show, which is Science Shorts, where we dig into the science of conservation. Now, if you like these chats that we have in in this particular series, then you're going to love the new column, which is on the Modern Huntsman website, which is called Into the Anthropocene. I put it together from articles and stories and papers that I read uh, and source from different scientists around the world and collate them once a month into essential reading. So head over to Modern Huntsman website and look up the Into the Anthropocene uh, column. You'll be able to read about um, worms in the Arctic and what that means for actually for, for climate change, believe it or not, worms in the Arctic, an invasive species, uh, and also what we're talking about today. So the uh, guest that we have on today's show is one of the authors of the paper that I write about in that column. This is a show about the importance of understanding science and the implications of our actions. A couple of months ago, I came across an article in the Guardian newspaper, which led me to a paper which had been published in Global Change Biology entitled, Tree Planting in Organic Soils Does Not Result in Net Carbon Sequestration on a Decadal Timescale. I have to admit, this is one of the aspects of climate change and the climate debate, which really fascinates me. In this study, they made use of scientific monitoring plots set up 40 years ago, which were originally being used to look at how native birch colonized and changed ecosystems on Heather Moorland. Today, these established control plots are being used to understand how trees sequester carbon in these environments, and the results are actually really surprising. I managed to steal a little time from one of the authors, Dr. Nina Friggins, to explain the findings of the research and what that could mean for future policy decisions. She picks up the conversation with the establishment of these historic testing plots. Um, so the, the questions that they were asking at the time of planting were different to the questions that we are asking today. They were less concerned about carbon sequestration as a, as a whole because climate change and carbon was much less of an agenda at that time. But yeah, the, yeah. For, 40 years ago, the landscape has changed quite a lot since then. Exactly, exactly. And but but the sites were are very unique because they were set up with experimentation in mind. So they they are uh, they were you know well replicated and everything was thought of and there was data from you know before planting and after planting and so that it's all very well thought through um which is a huge asset as a scientist coming to it 40 years later it's wonderful that uh, that's predecessors you know the, the the shoulders upon which all of this kind of builds this research builds that that that's been uh, you know, so well set up uh, because it makes life easier um, in the long run. And it, it, there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining long-term plots like this. Um, it's not just something that, you know, that sits there in the background. There is quite a lot of of, of work that goes into maintaining these things and p- various people have maintained them over the years and I'm hugely thankful to, to everyone involved, really. 
as is true of so much science, is it builds on on the work done by the people who came before us. Uh, so I mean that, that's uh, yeah, it's, a, it's it's an amazing story that you're now able to use science that was started 40 years ago for kind of a different purpose to tackle one of the, the really important issues of our lifetime. Um, and I just can you paint a picture for people because I mean we've been talking about plots. Uh, just paint a picture of what these look like. Explain exactly where they are in in the country. And and uh, I'm wondering, were these um, plots uh, fenced and then planted, or was this natural regeneration of birch? Yeah. So um, just to paint the paint the picture here for you, um, the the plots are all in the sort of the north of Scotland upland areas. Um, some of them are in the Grampians, some of them are in the Cairngorms, and there's uh, one site which is sort of in Glenafric, which is more west. Um, and the the common theme is that they're they're set in moorland landscapes, so um, sort of expanses of uh, heather-dominated shrub vegetation. And there are also other ericoid uh, shrubs there, sort of woody shrubs which which dominate the the landscape um and it's a very common habitat moorland habitat is very common um in scotland it covers about nine or ten percent of of land area in scotland um heather dominated moorland so it's a it's a common vegetation type in these upland areas let me just press pause on this for a moment i think most of you will be aware of what heather is that short, scrubby bush that turns Scotland's hills iconically a stunning glow of purple in late summer. But did you know that there is more Heather Moreland in the UK and Republic of Ireland than in the rest of the world combined? In fact, we have about 75% of the world's total. Many areas of Heather Moreland are recognised as sites of special scientific interest in recognition to their importance for biodiversity. So next time you see a hill clad in heather, you may just look at it a little differently. Okay, back to Nina. Um, and then the trees were, the young trees were planted into these plots uh, using a very minimally invasive technique. And that was, was done on purpose um, to keep um, disturbance at a minimum here. Um, and so the tr young trees were planted directly into the, the heather moorland um, in in plots that were uh, somewhere between 15 and 20 meters, um, sort of 20 by 20 meters. Um, so they are, when you look at it from an aerial photography uh, perspective, they look like sort of squares of forest in amongst this purple heather vegetation. And, and you were comparing the, the, the plots to the landscape literally on the other side of the fence as so that you could get a, as close a, a comparison as possible uh, yes and no so the we compared the planted plots to unplanted heather moorland plots but the uh, control plots or the unplanted plots if you were they were also inside the fence so oh, okay. imagine a, a, a fenced off area that's much much bigger you know than the plots themselves and within this fenced off area there is a uh, between uh, six and 12 birch plots and a similar number of replicates of uh, heather plots that are the same size. Um, and so that was it was important to have them all within the fence so that uh, the fencing didn't uh, you know influence our 
our results uh, that there's no grazing of from large herbivores in any of our sites because of the okay. fence. Um, yeah, I suppose that's, that's, an, that's an important point that um, because under normal circumstances outside of a fence, they would either be grazing by deer or or sheep. Was that um, was that a, a variable that um, you've you've can considered going going forward as to like how that might affect the i know we haven't talked about the results yet but how grazing pressure might affect results or if it would at all yeah it it's been um it's been brought up several times and 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 lots of people are interested in looking at the grazing pressures in the uplands it's it's quite heavily debated in scotland how how grazing pressures particularly from sheep but also an expanding deer population uh main sort of keeps the regeneration of of trees down and often keeps sort of the the heathland vegetation quite low as well um and there are other factors you know various uh, fertilization that that can occur from grazing and so on um but it in a in a study where you could ask very very many questions yes we wanted we wanted to focus on a quite a specific question and exclude grazing as a variable entirely that doesn't that doesn't mean that grazing isn't important in the wider context of this and important for other things but it was just a slightly different question and and if we wanted to do the best we could with this one question um and and get to the bottom of that and and really nail nail those results um and then you know then other things can be added on with time looking at grazing pressures etc yeah so let, let's get to that so what is the question that you were asking and and what did you discover from the from the research of these plots over time so what we were asking with this research was whether planting birch trees onto heather moorlands in Scotland would lead to net ecosystem carbon sequestration. So carbon sequestration in the whole ecosystem, importantly, both above and below ground. Um, And oftentimes, well, there's been a a huge amount of focus on uh, tree planting recently as a means for carbon sequestration and a climate change mitigation tool. Um, and we wanted to ask whether whether this in fact does sequester carbon because there's a lot of carbon that is to be gained above ground from tree planting potentially but it's also important to ask what goes on below ground because is it not true that uh, most of our carbon is actually locked below ground and not above yes. ground globally soils I think that's misunderstood <laughs> it is it is globally soils store more carbon than all vegetation and the atmosphere combined. So, so it, it's fundamental that we understand exactly what's happening subsurface in terms of sequestering carbon if we want to achieve the, these targets of uh, in, t- taking carbon out of the carbon cycle. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fundamental that we understand the processes that occur below ground um, because there is such a potential there for release of carbon i think that's it 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 might be easy to think that carbon in the soil is locked there and will stay there forever but that's not the case it is dynamic it is turning over and the rates of that turnover will depend on the vegetation that is above it 
and global temperatures and moisture and and other other variables but that can change it's not that the tap of release and turnover is not fixed at one rate it is changeable and we need to understand how can we change it so that we have the least amount of net release of carbon from the soil and how can we even maybe potentially sequester carbon into the soil and this kind of goes to your study which was looking looking at a system where there's a lot of carbon already stored in it and it's a very low energy system so it takes a very very long time to put uh, carbon into these uh, into these peatlands and, and heather, heather moorlands and uh, you could lose it fairly quickly if we're thinking about things like like fire and, and burning deep down and, um, and subsurface fires uh, and this this idea of looking at tree planting was how does that affect what would have happened without trees so what was it that you found because when i read the study i was quite surprised but it was a question that i had been asking myself very often with these what seem very often like quite arbitrary targets uh, for tree planting not really considering where are we putting these trees yeah yeah no exactly so so what we found was we had that after 12, 12 years after planting, um, there was a significant loss of carbon from the soil. So when you compared the heather moorland to the plots that had trees on them, there was a significant loss of carbon from the soil. And this carbon lost from the soil was not compensated for by c- carbon gained from tree biomass growth. And in the plots that were 39 years old, so trees had been growing there for 39 years. In some cases, we saw a significant loss of carbon from the soil still, but in at 39 years, the carbon gained above ground had offset the carbon lost from the soil. However, it wasn't, there was no net gain of carbon. So, at 39 years, you've you've not lost any carbon, but you've also not gained any carbon. Interesting. So really the, the question there, so you're actually taking a hit in the shorter term in terms of your ability to sequester, sequester carbon, what, what the net gain is or loss in this case. But in the long term, if, if it's a net zero-sum game, then the real question is what kind of ecosystem do we want rather than actually doing it for... Uh, the benefit of putting carbon, locking carbon in and taking it out of the system. Yeah, yeah, I, su- I suppose so. Um, but it, it, for me, I also find the timescales of this interesting. And especially if we think about the timescales that are being talked about in terms of, uh, you know, global climates and um, this, how long what period of time we have left in inverted commas to uh, change our current trajectory in terms of uh, climate change, global temperatures, um, greenhouse gas emissions, etc. If we're talking about things like in Scotland, for example, the target is net zero by 2045. Well, if, if after 40 years you've not locked away any carbon, then then trees in these ecosystems is not the answer to that question. It doesn't solve that problem in that timescale. It it might do over 
longer timescales, although that would assume that there would be no further loss of carbon from the soil. The reason we think that there is loss of carbon from the soils through tree planting is because these ecosystems um, have quite low nitrogen. And so the trees the trees need nitrogen to grow and it's a, a vital uh, resource for them. And in in doing so, in mining the, the soil for nitrogen, uh, both via the roots, but also the uh, sort of symbiotic fungi that that grow with the trees. In mining for this nitrogen, carbon is made more accessible to other microbes as a consequence, and therefore is uh, metabolized and turned over. So the growth of the tree, the, the, the nutrients which are required for tree growth, they are also the the scavenging and the, the mining for this nutrient is also what is causing the loss of carbon from the soil. Therefore, as as the tree grows bigger, it needs more nitrogen, and therefore you could envisage a situation where the tr- there's always, you know, the, the, the tree grows bigger, but there's more loss of carbon from the soil. And therefore, at no point are you actually sequestering carbon. It's really fascinating. So it's almost it's uh, it's injecting energy into the subsurface system and stimulating it into activity, and so you end up with maybe it would be good to just just explain um, soil respiration because that's what we're talking about here. Yes, yes. So we're 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 talking soil respiration, um, which is a cumulative respiration from. Uh, tree roots that respire uh, as well as the tree the, the tree does in in dark in darkness but the tree roots respire uh, as well but it's also uh, largely made up of uh, microbial respiration so respiration from um, bacteria fungi archaea in the soil um, and they're basically using the, the bacteria are using carbon, which is stored within the soil, for growth and metabolism, and they respire CO two as a byproduct of that, just like humans do. The results from the study, in so, I mean, I find them uh, completely fascinating, but in some ways, it's actually quite worrying because it, what it shouted at me was, well, maybe we're doing the wrong thing with the best intentions. We have government incentives that are for tree planting, and particularly here in Scotland, that are probably not going to deliver what they really hoped it would. Yeah, that that there is a potential for that. Although I don't, I don't think necessarily that it's it's all doom and gloom. It, I think the important thing that that these results highlight is that planting trees. Is might not be the best solution in these particular ecosystems, and that's important to stress. This is we're looking at one ecosystem type here. We're looking at, at moorlands, which, as you mentioned earlier, have large soil carbon stocks already pre-existing, and it's a very low energy system where things are turning over very slowly. And you then add in the trees, which cranks up the energy. And all of a sudden, things are turning over much more quickly. And and that's where we end up seeing the results that we see in our study, where uh, 
there's a loss of carbon from the soil, which isn't compensated for by carbon gained above ground. And so on balance, actually, you're not gaining any carbon. However, in a different ecosystem type, in where there's, for example, much less carbon stored in the soils, planting trees is likely to add, uh, you know, to be able to contribute to significant carbon sequestration above ground, but also potentially carbon sequestration below ground through, you know, litter fall and root exudates and all the sort of things that add carbon to the soil um, in, a, in a soil where there is capacity to store more carbon and there is n- not as much carbon to be lost. Um, so, I th- so I think the the, the, the really big take-home message or, or what our study highlights is that we need to understand where in the landscape tree planting is best deployed in order to have the maximum climate benefits and where tree planting can lead to carbon sequestration. And when we know, once we know where to plant, then we can, you know, then we can roll out all of our government schemes and all of all of that in order to to get these benefits but we do need to understand where we where is best to plant and in what you know in what ecological context because we do risk as you say with the best intentions sort of blanketly blanket assuming that its trees are always going to sequester carbon whereas what our study shows is in some cases actually they don't, at least not for 40 years, um, which might not be the timescales that we need at this point. It shows that the knowledge that we gain from scientific study is always evolving. I mean, that is science. And I just hope uh, that we can act fast enough with the new information that comes to hand. I mean, this is a very new study. A lot of the uh, a lot of the, the movement for things like tree planting incentives and and funding happened in government over many years and there's a lot of momentum behind them so i hope that the something like this uh, can be reacted to quite quickly um if i can just ask you one last question just as we bring this to a close and i realize that this wasn't in the study but one of the other things that comes to mind and i kind of uh, alluded to this a little earlier is that uh, i mean it's incredibly relevant for for what's been happening particularly um over in america and in the arctic uh, a couple of months ago is this idea of fire mitigation and and i wonder whether there is a, a risk analysis that also needs to be done in some of in some of these uh, the, these places where we're we're looking at replacing a current ecosystem that exists today with this higher above ground biomass of trees and the ability to actually manage that and stop fire uh, is that something that we're going to have to understand better as well definitely definitely I, as you say we don't currently there are an unfortunately large number of examples where uh, the destructive powers of fire and the huge, huge amounts of carbon released into the atmosphere through surface burn, but also, uh, you know, burning below ground, that, that those fires, particularly in Siberia currently, are also burning the carbon which is stored below ground, which is, you know, huge, huge amounts and and potentially you know catastrophic for global climate and so as yeah if 
if we are going to have these very managed woodlands, if if they are going to be planted and managed by humans, then it, to me, makes logical sense to have fire mitigation steps in place. You know, fire breaks, all these things. You know, forest foresters know know this stuff. It's that's that's not news to them. But it does make sense that we we stop and think. I think. I think again that we come back to, you know, if if we just want to plant plant up everything in one big blanket of forest, it might be a wonderful ecosystem for other things, and and it's important that I mention that there are lots of other benefits from forestry that isn't related to climate or to carbon. You know, there's lots of biodiversity, there's lots of, uh, you know. It, sort of hydrology things that are very beneficial it creates jobs it's good for human well-being there's lots of you know there's lots of other benefits um and and those benefits shouldn't be ignored they should still be taken into account um but again what we were focusing on here was the carbon uh, story um but if if you know we might as if we are going to plant in a managed way it's important that we a understand where to plant in order to gain, you know, have this maximum uh, gain in terms of carbon and, and climate change mitigation. But as as you point out, also it makes sense to to put in various steps that mean that if, for example, fire were to rip through, that that we have breaks in place and other things. We have the power to do that preemptively rather than being reactionary, which happens in other cases of course those those wood those woods are not man-made and that is why fire breaks don't exist and that's also important to to mention you know these are huge huge areas of of forest that have existed there for hundreds and hundreds of years and therefore fire breaks and it's it's not managed and therefore that's not a criticism of any management that goes on in in Siberia or in California or anywhere else. But if we can design our forests, we might as well design them with with mitigation factors like that in place. I think. Nina, thank you so much for this fascinating insight. Uh, it's been great to speak to you today, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to digging into this more because it's a topic that. Uh, has fascinated me for a while and I hope for people who are listening who haven't really considered this as something which is actually an intriguing intriguing topic. It sounds on the surface something that could be quite mundane. How does carbon get um, sequestered either above ground or below ground? But uh, it's really fundamental actually for the future of humanity and the planet. So it's kind of important as well as fascinating. So thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you once again for listening. Join me in a week's time when we're going to hear from TV presenter and wildlife enthusiast, Nick Baker.